welcome to the Amor Mundi podcast from the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. Amor Mundi means love of the world. We are here to explore ways of thinking together and loving the world in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. This is episode 11, Thinking with One Another. It features the Arendt Center's founder and director, Roger Berkowitz, in conversation with Masha Gessen, journalist and Bard College Distinguished Writer-in-Residence. The talk was organized by James Rodewald for the Bardian magazine and took place over Zoom on February 3rd, 2021. Uh, so, hello. Um, hi, Masha. How are you doing? Um, I'm good, Roger. How are you? Good. I'm Roger Berkowitz. Uh, yes, interesting times. I'm Roger Berkowitz uh, at Bard College and the Hannah Arendt Center, and I'm thrilled to be talking with my colleague, uh, Masha Gessen. So, Masha, the, the question that um, when we were asked to have this conversation, there was a quotation from a, an interview or a podcast you did with Ezra Klein a couple, a little while ago, and you said that the central object of Arendt's study, uh, her thinking in, in many ways about autocracy or totalitarianism, is what happens to society when there's too much distance or not enough distance. It is so important in her thinking that people think with one another. In order to think with one another, they have to feel their separateness from one another. You have to be an individual capable of forming an opinion and expressing it and exchanging it and seeing the reflection of your ideas in the eyes of others. So um, this is a, I think a really insightful and profound uh, account of RN's thinking. So wondering maybe if we could just begin by having you lay it out a little bit. You know, what is what do you mean a little bit by that we worry about what happens when there's too much distance or not enough distance? So, um, I mean, I feel funny talking to you about it, Roger, because I think you you have spent more time thinking and talking about this than I have. But you know, as I read. The origins of totalitarianism, and especially the last chapter where she talks about loneliness and solitude. So, if I if I remember correctly, she she originally talks about how totalitarianism is really only possible to build in an atomized society. Yeah, um, and that's where I was, that's why I was talking about too much distance. But then, you know, she has this incredible image of uh, of the elimination of distance of people being melded together into one man of gigantic proportions, which, you know, which is one of the images that have stayed with me since like my first reading of, of the origins of totalitarianism, because I literally imagine, you know, the sort of the Soviet communal apartment, right? In which there's no space to be, right? There are no, you know, it is extremely difficult for a person to feel their physical limits, their immediate you know, quotidian life ends and somebody else's begins. And I think, you know, she talks about how that disappearance of distance makes thinking impossible. And I was, I was thinking a lot about what she wrote about loneliness and solitude when the pandemic struck. And we all ended up, or I don't want to say we all, the lucky ones among us ended up in isolation, which is not actually, as far as I remember, a term that she uses. But isolation is not solitude. It is loneliness. And she thinks of loneliness as the ultimate, you know, the defining condition of, of totalitarianism. 
Well, I mean, it's it, look, I think this is fantastic. And um, I mean, there's a few things I want to just throw out there. One is I really love the way you frame this because I think of Arendt as a deeply spatial thinker. Um, so much of her work is about spaces. And that's where she also gets into trouble, the public space, the private space, the social space. And are they distinct? And this, of course, is a place where she gets into, well, how distinct are they and, and how can we distinguish them? But also the space of freedom and also the space of appearances, which is for her the, the public world, how we appear to each other. And the world is, as she describes it, politics is about a concern not for individuals, but for the world, for the world that organizes how we appear to each other and confront each other. And so I just wanted to say about isolation, loneliness, and solitude, she actually distinguishes all three. She, she makes yeah. a distinction between loneliness versus isolation versus solitude. And, and very quickly, right, because um, I think it helps, and I think you have it right, solitude is being alone with oneself when one can think with oneself and like the artist or the thinker who can be in conversation with oneself. And she says solitude is absolutely necessary for all thinking uh, and for artists and for writers and musicians or, or whoever, um, because that's where we get into that conversation with ourselves, where we think about the world. Isolation, which she thinks of as the uh, space of tyranny, right? As opposed to totalitarianism, is this being uh, isolated. Here we are in our Zoom rooms. We can have dinner parties and we can go meet for a chess club or a, or a poetry club. But what we can't do is go out in the street and protest and we can't write publicly about what we think. And so it's a political isolation. You're isolated in your private life, right? And then and then loneliness, which um, I think is something we really do have to think about. It's funny that the person who I think has gotten this more right than anyone is Claudia Rankine, right? In her first major book on loneliness. And she says, loneliness is what we can't do for each other. I, I love that, that formulation. Loneliness is being fully abandoned by others and even by oneself. It's a despair or dumbness in that sense. You know, I think there's a question of, to what extent this pandemic has led to loneliness or not. Right. I think many of us lucky ones, a lot of people feel quite engaged with others in the world. And then many don't. Um, I think one of the biggest questions the pandemics raised for me is to what extent does loneliness depend upon physical touch and physical encounters with other people, right? I mean, the, the, the not hugging, the not shaking hands, the not seeing my parents for five months. To what extent does that matter in, in loneliness? So that's just something I've been thinking a lot about. But I want to pick up on this, on this idea of thinking about spaces. So I had, um, I've, I've had this uh, unintentional experiment over the last couple of weeks. I'm teaching a class on great political essays. Mm. And um, I decided to add uh, lectures and political speeches to the syllabus, because they're also political essays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also because I think, and this has something I, th I believe to do with loneliness, I think a lot of people, including a lot of students, are having a lot of trouble concentrating on reading. Yeah. Right? So I thought, because, because the class structure, it's, a, it's an odd syllabus where um, 
students actually choose one thing to read every week out of a menu and then bring their discussion to class. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll add a video to, to every week, uh, every week's selection to give people the option of watching a video instead of, instead of reading an essay. And, you know, the great lectures and speeches are actually not that easy to find on the internet because we've only had cheap cameras for, you know, 15 years or so. And so before that, you had to have professional equipment uh, to record the speeches. But anyway, I, was, I, was, I, I found some selection uh, sort of in the 2000s and 2010s. And then, of course, there is a huge wealth of recorded talks uh, from the last year when politics moved on Zoom. And my great discovery is that they're completely unusable. They are flat. It is more rewarding to watch a very bad recording of, uh, you know, on a high-eight video camera in 2000 from the back of a large auditorium uh, of somebody giving a talk than it is to watch a high-quality two-dimensional Zoom recording of somebody giving a talk. And this was completely unexpected to me. And I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around why watching somebody, you know, minimally move through space exist through space is such an important thing to listening to them talk, right? Uh, I can't quite explain it. You sense, I mean, again, this is like, I'm, I'm talking about a bad hiat recording uh, done from the back of a room. So you can barely see the speaker. You can't see any of the audience, but you can see that the person is among people. Yeah. They, they hit a technical snag. They laugh with the audience. Uh, they stumble and get feedback. And, you know, to the extent that every, every lecture, every speech is an act of thinking in public, I could really, over the last two weeks of going through this, just this endless number of recordings, I could see very clearly the difference between the act of speaking in public and the act of speaking in private, of thinking in private for public consumption. And the difference is unmistakable. And I think it has, it has a lot to do with, with what Arndt was talking about, you know, and the distinction between loneliness and solitude where solitude is necessary for thinking and loneliness makes thinking impossible. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I see that in teaching, you know, the, the trying to teach over Zoom, I find a very deadening experience personally. Um, I, I, so much of teaching is responding to the energy in a room. Uh, it's a full physical experience. And uh, I'm really grateful that Bard is letting us teach in person this year. Uh, it's been a, it's been a, a great, uh, great thing. You know, for her, this space of this world, right, that is really about sharing a common world. Uh, it's about being in a world with others and coming to understand that the world is filled with people who disagree with you, who, who are unlike you. That's what she calls plurality. And you, you quote in one of a piece you wrote recently, and Ezra Klein actually read it to you on his podcast or parts of it. You quote uh, one of my favorite uh, passages of RN from her, her her essay introduction into politics, which I just finished teaching on the virtual reading group. And in that quote, you say, if someone wants to see and experience the world as it really is, he or they can do so only by understanding it as something that is shared by many people, lies between them, separates and links them, showing itself differently to each and comprehensible only to the extent that many people can talk about it and exchange their opinions and perspectives with one another 
over against one another. And there's a lot of different ways to take that quote and, and everything. But in your conversation with, with Ezra, you framed it in a, in a discussion of, of the sort of rise of subjectivism, right, in the, in the modern world. And this is something that I'm sure you know in, in the human condition, Arendt was really sort of deeply engaged with. I mean, a large part of the human condition is about what she calls world alienation, the, the way in which we are increasingly alienated from a common world that we share with others. And she traces it in, to a number of places, one to the rise of science, which turns us away from the world we see of objects to theories and explanations, but also to the Cartesian idea of doubting reality and the idea that all I know is what's in me, this subjectivism. And something you said in that interview with Ezra struck me as so right and I think important, which is that even with the rise of this internalization, this subjectivism, there was still a commitment to be part of the common world, to share something. And what we see fitfully over the last hundred years at times, whether it's in Nazi Germany or Bolshevik Russia, or now in many places around the world, is a loss of a commitment to that common world. And this is something, as you know, Arendt obviously was, uh, was deeply concerned with. You know, I just really like the way you frame that. Where did you start noticing this loss of a commitment to this common world? Where did that first come to you? Roger, I have no idea. <laughs> so it's a fair question. Fair first, yeah, it, no, it's a, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, and I, I love being interrogated in that way, but um, I have no idea. I mean, I was, I've been thinking about it certainly since the, the Trump election. I mean, in all of my work, both on Russia and, and on the United States, you know, I, I, I think perhaps disproportionately write about language as as an instrument of politics and disproportionately not because I don't think it's important, but because, you know, like there are many other uh, things in politics that are probably as important that I'm not quite as fascinated with. But I think I come to this from that direction. How do we understand the ways in which totalitarian dictators would be autocrats, other kinds of autocrats abuse language? Mm -hmm. Like we know, we have an instinctive sense that they're doing something with language that ought not be done with it. Yeah. And I think that she helps diagnose what it is that they're doing with it, which is that they're, you know, they're using it in anti-political ways, right? Uh, they're using it um, against the conversation, against the very possibility of conversation. So, I mean, I, I think there's a way in which that's extremely right. The way, how I understand what you're saying is, the way someone like President, ex-President Trump, we can say, uses lies, right? Let's just, well, I know the, the word lies is complicated, but uses repeated claims of things which are simply not factually true. For example, that the election was a fraud or was stolen from him. To a certain group of people is to appeal to them, right? To, to have a conversation with them. But in doing so, he creates sort of this split between people who agree with him or not. I mean, he's clearly, I mean, you know, something you said before about you can't have a political conversation without people. He loves to have people there. I mean, he thrives on that. And that's his genius. It's sort of, so he's in a conversation. It's just a conversation with 40% of the people or 30% of the people. Yeah. I think there's an important distinction though. You know, in a way I'm much more interested in, uh, in what 
Trump says about the weather than what he says about the election. <laughs> um, be, because he has on at least two occasions lied about the weather. Right. That to me is really like indicative of what is going on. When he talked about the, his inauguration, right? He sent Sean Spicer out there, if you recall, four years ago to say that it was the largest inauguration ever. And, but also to say that it was sunny. And he claimed, Trump himself claimed that, you know, it had been drizzling, but then when he started speaking, the sun came out and not a single drop, a single drop of rain fell. And then after he finished speaking, it started raining again. The thing is that weather is, in most contexts, kind of an unambiguous shared reality. I mean, you can argue whether, but whether you like the snow or not, but like there's a giant snowbank outside my window. And it would be very odd, but very Trump-like if I claimed that it was green grass. By claiming that it's green grass, he is creating an encapsulated reality that he's sort of inviting that 40% of people to join him in. And that, you know, to, to Arendt, that idea of ideological thinking, you know, she didn't think of it as so much, you know, when we use the word ideology casually, I think we often imagine that it's like some coherent system of beliefs and, and it's complicated. And she said, no, it was preposterous. But the biggest, the most important thing about totalitarian ideology was that it subjected all perceptions of the world to this preposterous idea. Yeah. And it was entirely impervious to any fact-based intervention because it could explain all of that all of those interventions away using its own you know preposterous idea right and that's the connection to loneliness right because for her loneliness is the sort of background condition for that kind of lying that kind of totalitarian lying because she says this modern lie where you say there's no snowbank when there is or it's raining when it's sunny out she says can only be only succeed when you lie to people who are lonely, not in the sense of being alone, but a sense of being without purpose, in a sense, completely abandoned in their sense of, of life. And they need to believe in something. And they would rather believe in something that makes them feel good, a coherent fiction that makes them feel alive, right? Uh, that makes them feel important than be confronted with a reality in which they're not that important. And that's, I mean, loneliness for Arendt, there have been people alone for a long time throughout history. It's not a new thing. But what she thinks new is new in the modern world about loneliness is that people who really were desperately abandoned and, and feeling completely uh, astray in the world were generally people on the margin society, the very old, the, the sick, et cetera. And now she thinks this is a mass phenomena. By the way, that affects all people of all political sides who all need to believe in some truth. But there's a difference that currently uh, you have somebody who's at the top, the president, lying in a way that is able to really, when the president lies, you have to report it. You have to pay attention. You can't just ignore it. And so then it just keeps entering the world. And that seems the scenario we're in. I mean, one thing is that she does say in, in, in Origins of Totalitarianism, as I, as I know you well know, she says that as soon as the, the strong man or the demagogue loses power and exits the scene, the lie crumbles. You know, uh, it's that famous line right at the beginning of chapter 10, where she says, you know, as soon as Hitler and Stalin died, the lies around them crumbled. And that, you know, it, it's not something that lasts. 
And this actually brings up something I, I mentioned to you just before we started, you know, that in this conversation you had a couple, uh, a little while ago at Penn, Peggy Noonan, uh, you know, a never Trumper Republican, former Reagan press secretary, you know, said something that after the riots or the coup, whatever we want to call it on January 6th, that she thought that over time, a new consensus would emerge. The truth, it's not that lies are truth, it's the truth is a consensus. And I think that's actually a very Arendtian idea, that truth emerges over time. You know, Trump is out, you know, is no longer president. And yet it seems like, you know, okay, it's only been a month, not even a month. It's um, been 10 days, yeah. In 10 days. I, I just think it's going to... But, you know, are you confident that a, a kind of new consensus, a kind of new truth will reassert itself? Trump's off the scene. Do you think RN's right that this will crumble or are you not so sure? I mean, that's to me a big question for us right now. Well, I think that the question is not so much will it crumble as what takes its place. Uh-huh. Uh, because she wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism before Stalin died. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen since, uh, it's been a long time, and I think it's been an instructive time, is that if there's nothing to fill the void, you know, that's left over from the lie, from the sense of belonging, that the lie, not so much gave, but maybe, you know, dangled this, right. this promise of belonging, then people will reach for it again. So you either need another lie that's as grand and as preposterous, or you need a true story that is as intentional uh, and as compelling, or people will reach back toward that. that what do you mean? A tr- what do you mean a true story? This is you know part of what I was talking about in that pen conversation that, that you referenced. You know, I've thought a lot about what happened to post-Soviet countries um, after the, that empire collapsed, and I think that one way to to understand it is through through making a distinction between countries that had a story to tell and told a story and countries that ended up without a story. An example to me of a country without a story was Hungary. Hungary had a real problem with how to think of itself after the Soviet occupation ended because it had been an ally of Nazi Germany during World War II. And there were a couple of attempts to kind of position Hungary as as a victim of both totalitarian regimes, which is true or truer of most other post-Soviet countries, but wasn't true of Hungary. And that story, um, it kind of fell apart very quickly. And I think it has a lot to do with the need for a big liar um, like Viktor Orban. It's it's so interesting to me that you say we need a new truth. And what you're talking about is a story, right? Which I think is really right. It's a truth in the form of a story. And what we're, what's obvious to people like, I think like us, is that, you know, we're living through a time when the American story is being splintered, challenged in in myriad ways right now. And so a big question is, what would it mean to retell the American story? If if I hear what you're saying, and I think I agree, that the lies, the, the predilection to conspiracies and coherent fictions will continue, certainly on the right and and maybe even in times and parts of the left, until some sort of new American story, to keep it here for a second, is able to be told. That is what you're saying? That is is what I'm saying. And 
you know, I think we actually have an inkling of what that story can be and, and should be. The question is, is there political leadership to, to sweep the country up in that story, right? I think that story is, is the story of an unfulfilled American promise. And that's, you know, that's the story of Langston Hughes' America and the inaugural poem by Amanda Gorman, which is its clear descendant. In Langston Hughes' words, um, America was never America to me. And then he says that America will be. That brings together that, you know, that grand promise of America, the idea of radical equality and inclusion that, um, that made this country, the first country to be founded on, on a set of abstract ideas, and the failure to deliver on that promise systematically for a large part of the population, right? And that's, um, and so I think that story can be told and is in fact being told, but we need, and, uh, and I'm afraid that this goes against uh, the Democrats' political instincts, we need as profound a commitment to telling a story as the right, I think, has instinctively. I mean, it's, it seems to me that at least, I mean, we can criticize the Biden administration for a lot and I'll, I'll do so in a sec, but <laughs> it seems to me if any story is the story, well, I'd say there's two main stories that the Biden regime is, Biden presidency is, is telling. One, I think, is the story you mentioned, a, a cabinet that's more diverse, more plural, more 50% women. It's the most diverse cabinet in history. And there's an attempt to bring that story out, I think. I think, you know, I think that's a, a core aspect of it, maybe not doing it as well as, as we'd like. But the other story, and the one that I'm much more fearful and skeptical of, is a return to normalcy in this idea of technocracy. Bring back the bureaucrats, the Obama people, the, the same people who were there 10 years ago that Trump ran against and, and won. And I guess this is my one sort of wrinkle to, to your saying that the story is one we all know and agree on, because I, I think most of us do know and agree on the story you've told, at least plottingly to some degree, is that as much as the division in this country is about race, and that's a big part of it and, and other identity issues, another part of it's really about education, experts, uh, technocrats, um, who has the right to tell the story, right? Is it people who went to college and have been in some sense pulled out of our home communities and put into a more abstract thinking world and think in rational terms? Or is it, you know, local people who are still 50 or 60% of the country who didn't go to college, who, who think much more through feelings and, and loyalties and familial and ethnic and religious and racial identities. And that to me, that to me, as much as, if not more than, the race uh, story is actually the story Trump ran on and, and, and won on. And that's the story that the liberals are not even close to retelling. And that's why I fear that we're not in a position to really tell a story that can unite the country right now. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It makes perfect sense to me, although I think there are two different strands in what you were just saying. And so let me first pick up on one, which is... You know, I think you're absolutely right in your diagnosis of technocracy. And I think that the reason that I raised the question of whether the Biden administration has a commitment to storytelling mm -hmm. is because I think it runs counter to what remains sort of the dominant American understanding of what constitutes politics, 
I think that in sort of in their Rentian understanding of politics, politics is a conversation. Politics is how we figure out how we live together in the city, in the state, and in the nation, in the world, right? In the American media, mainstream uh, Democratic Party understanding of politics, politics is management. And I remember a, a gubernatorial debate between Andrew Cuomo and Cynthia Nixon. And, you know, and I think Cynthia Nixon is actually brilliant and, uh, you know, and a really terrific activist yeah. who was running as an activist. Mm-hmm. But when Cuomo started saying that, you know, what does she know? I mean, it was also like this incredibly sexist moment, but, but, but he was, you know, what does she know? She doesn't know how to manage a state budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she doesn't know how to like, you know, how to deal with, with, with natural disasters like fires or floods. And Cynthia Nixon started talking about how, no, no, she like, she has been an education activist for a long time and she's dealt with big budget, uh, education budgets and she's analyzed them. And so she knows what she's talking about. What I think she, what she should have said was, look, you know, I'm not running for chief accountant of the state of New York. I'm not running for head fire chief of the state of New York. I'm running for leader. Uh, it will be my job to hire the chief accountant and the chief fireman. But my main job is to figure out, to help the people of the state figure out how we live together in this state. Yeah. So that's, I share your pessimism because I think that we're very far from being able to entirely reframe what politics has been uh, I think you uh, you have traced the the sort of the, the rise of technocracy at least to to JFK in this country, um, but I think it's really been exacerbated since the war of ideologies ended in 1989. That's right. Well, I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I keep having to remind myself. I don't know if you feel this way, but I honestly keep having to say, don't forget this. The two reasons Trump lost were the coronavirus and that first debate performance. He was going to he could have won if it weren't for yeah. those two things. And both of those are about what you're calling management or the accountant phenomena. Right. People looked at that and said, you know, I just don't trust the guy to be running the country during the coronavirus. And I, I think he lost it, lost it there. But on the storytelling thing, he was still 50 50 with Biden going into that first debate where he could have saved it even after the whole coronavirus fiasco. And that's where I think I think I agree. I think we agree on our pessimism in some ways that clearly the story that the Democrats are telling is not one that's winning over the people attracted to Trump's story. And it's not just based on lies and and whatever. It's the story's not working. And and I think part of that is that we are unwilling to, you know, even after four years of Trump, we're still unwilling to go through the honest self-appraisal that people simply disagree with our vision of society. And I don't think so many people disagree with our vision of a racially just society. I mean, there's on the edges, yes, I'm, and we can have that discussion, but I think it's more on this question of activism versus what does she know? I think it's more of the technocratic debates. And so this is gonna, this will bring into another issue that I know you've written and talked a lot about and one that I find what you say really smart and right, and yet it, it bothers me. So I, I, it's something I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about, which is institutions. Uh-huh. I didn't think I was until about 10 years ago or something, but I now think of myself more and more as an institutionalist. 
Um, and I know you've taken on this sort of view and said that what we've learned is that institutions are not that valuable. It's what we put into them. And I guess I would say, but isn't that, a, of course, an institutionalist would agree with that. I, I don't see institutions as protecting us if we're corrupt. I think the problem is that institutions can do two things. One is they can help uncorrupt us. And one, to me, the the real institutions that we're losing are our democratic institutions, the Congress, the state governments. The, the, I mean, these, these things have become jokes uh, and everybody knows it. You know, in the Senate, I mean, people talk about the Senate. Well, the Senate's become a joke. I mean, to me, and this, this is where it comes around, to me, the story of America that I guess I think we need to embrace is one of a much more anarchic, humbler, less intellectual, less technocratic, less we know right, you guys are wrong, and come back to the fact that we really disagree. And that's part of this country. This country has had moments of consensus, but the vast majority of the time of this country has been dissensus. And it strikes me that we need to bring a much more kind of open raucousness to our politics, allow the Trump voices to come in and argue with them in a way that's respectful within institutions. And this is where I think institutions are important. Have the institutions be a place where people can actually have these arguments and come to, to, to know each other. I mean, as I think, you know, I mean, I'm very interested in this idea of citizen assemblies and bringing, you know, randomly selected hundreds of people in and having them work with people and, and learn to talk with people they disagree with. Because to me, that's what the institutions are important. The jury and citizen juries, what they do is they bring people who are different, plural, who are not going to agree, where they can come to some sort of least common denominator agreement. And that to me is, I think, Arendtian in her sense, that government is about coming to that lowest common denominator that we agree with and affirming that. And I think the biggest problem in our politics now, at least among the, the left and the center and the center right, is that we're not willing to give up on what we think we know. Um, we, we're willing, you know, we, we have this sort of intellectual technocratic certainty. That's my institutionalism is that we need to go back to that sort of institution as, as debating societies, as governing societies. I don't think we disagree. Uh, you're like painting me as an anti-institutionalist. But, you know, you may not remember this, but um, you and I had lunch, I think it was spring or summer, early spring. I think Trump had just locked in the nomination or maybe it was about to. He had launched, and, but he hadn't won yet. Right. I think it was in uh, 2015 or six, 2016, right? Yeah, I think, but it was like early in the year. Yeah. Um, it was at Edgar's, right? <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and, um, and we talked very briefly, right? At the time, it didn't seem like it required a long conversation. We talked very briefly about what would happen if Trump won. Yeah. And we both very quickly agreed that, um, oh, American institutions are like really strong and they'll take care of him. And honestly, I like was biking away from that meeting with you and thinking, but are they? <laughs> and that launched me actually on that path and culminated with uh, this essay that I wrote right after the election that began with institutions will not save you. Right. But, and where I think you and I agree, actually, is on the, on the subject of humility, mm -hmm. because I think that the position that, you know, our institutions are so strong, it's a, it's a position from outside institutions that positions them as a thing that exists independently of everything else, right? And that will always work. 
And unfortunately, there's, you know, again, that ugly narrative is rearing its head and saying, oh, look, you know, institutions worked so well. All right. Biden is elected. As we know, institutions just barely squeaked by for him to get elected, but also for power not to have been usurped by a mob on January 6th. But, you know, what you were talking about is, is very different. You're talking about inhabiting institutions. Right. And doing the work actively doing the work for which they're intended, because they will actually not do it without being inhabitants, left to their own devices, without thinking of them as a work in progress always. And I think that's the really important part. You know, they can they can act as doorstoppers for a while, Yeah, which is kind of how I think they acted in the most recent crisis, the election crisis of, of 2020. I mean, this is something I think, well, I'm interested to know if we do agree on this. Do you really think they barely squeaked by I guess I have, and maybe this is just my more confidence in this. I sort of feel like the reason people like Cruz and Holly could do what they did is because they knew they were going to work. And if they hadn't, if they didn't know that, they would have not done what they did. I guess I don't have this sense that they barely squeaked by, but maybe I'm fooling myself. But I, you, you really do believe they barely squeaked by. I do. You know, I mean, we were pretty far gone. And I think, that, you know, there, there are a couple of ways to look at this. One is just look, and this is something you were talking about earlier, just look at the election. Right? You were talking about the narrow margin of ideas by, uh, by which Trump won, but also look at the narrow margin of votes. Yeah, We're so taken up with the record number of voters. But what really strikes me is that if you look at the percentages in this election, it looks like a normal American election. It doesn't look extraordinary. In fact, it looks like a normal election of the last generation because margins used to be wider. But it is extraordinary in the number of people who voted. And that matters because Trump brought in, I mean, this is the thing we wanted to talk about, so maybe we'll bring it in. He brought in the masses, right? Right. People who were left out of politics. The people who, as RN says, and and not just her, I mean, John Shar, who used to teach at UC Santa Barbara, had this great article a long time ago, that the entire American system of liberal democracy depends upon 50% of the people not voting because if they really voted, we'd be like screwed. You know I mean? The system would be, and you know, Trump mobilized those masses and that's extraordinary. And I think we have to at least, I mean, that does not usually happen now. Maybe they'll stay mobilized. My guess is not. I don't know. I mean, I think that depends on which way the Republican party goes. If the Republican party becomes a mass party, They'll stay mobilized, but I don't think they can ever win an election as a mass party again. But maybe that's my optimism on institutions. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very worried about that. But also talking about uh, the masses, um, I mentioned as we were getting ready for this conversation that that I don't quite understand Karen's distinction between masses and mob. And you said, oh, I don't. I can actually tell the difference. So what's the difference? So first of all, let me say I don't think she's 100% consistent. I mean, one of the things I love about Hannah Arendt is she's not a systematic philosopher. She's a she writes in aphorisms a lot and she writes. I look at her writing as often a bunch of aphorisms strung together by longer you know, words in between them. And so she, she uses words in different texts to different audiences differently. And so sometimes when she writes about mobs, she's talking about masses and vice versa. But I think there's something meaningfully different. A mob is a criminal organization. Her example, right? The first example she gives of a mob is is the Nazi mob, the mob who voted for the Nazis. And she said that the mob was a response to the inability of the Nazis 
to convince the whole of Germany that the Jews were the cause of every all ills. And thus the mob claimed that the Jews were the cause and they were willing to incorporate crime and criminality in order to win. For the her, the mob seeks power. It's driven by power and it's driven by interest, right? They want to, they want to accomplish something. So if you want to think of the Trump mob and I, and I think it's very interesting because I think there's a mob-like element of the Trump support and there's a mass-like element. So the, the mob-like element of the Trump support are the people who feel like they play by the rules and you have these illegal immigrants or these, non, or these non-white, brown and black people coming in and they want power and they want to exclude them and they want to speak very plainly about it. And I take that to be what she would mean by the mob. The masses are for her slightly different. Because the mob shares an interest. The mob shares an economic interest. They share a political interest. They want power. The mass, she thinks of as in a different way. It's um, they have no common interests. There's no class or articulation. She says that they're people who can't be integrated into a class or party. They're the detritus of all the classes. So they're the, the Steve Bannons and the Steve Millers and then all the people who you know, storm the Capitol. They're the neutral and different people who usually don't go to the polls. That's how she describes them. Right. You know, and so she says the mobilization of the masses and Trump has certainly mobilized them shows two myths of democracy. The first is that most people support one of the two parties, which just is not true. Most people are indifferent and that they don't matter, these masses. And she says they don't matter in general, but they do matter, you know, when they're mobilized. And so she sees these masses of lonely detritus outsiders who, unlike the mob, are not mobilizing for an interest, but just need to be mobilized. And they can be mobilized for any interest. And one day they can be fighting against immigrants, and the next day they can be fighting against technocrats, and the next day they can be fighting against an election system or or Diebold or, or whatever it is. And it really doesn't matter to them. They can be fighting for QAnon against pedophiles in the government. They just need to be mobilized. I think there's an overlap between the mob and the masses. But I mean, I think that you can see a difference between an interest-based group of people who are willing to follow a corrupt criminal path in order to just get power. Power is everything, will to power. And then a group of people who's actually not so interested in power just needs to be mobilized and is willing to almost do anything as long as they're given some sense of importance and meaning in the world. That's, I think, the basic difference between these two groups. I think they're both at play in the current situation. And she writes about the temporary alliance between the elites and the masses. Yeah. Right. How would you apply that to, to now? Well, I mean, the temporary alliance between the mobs, the, the masses, the elites and the, and the masses is that the elites think, oh, we can pursue our interests by mobilizing this mob or this mass in order to to do what we want. And she was really, she was aghast at these intellectuals who basically said, bourgeois society is weak and is is corrupt and we should burn the whole thing down. Right. And we'll mobilize the masses to help burn it down and it'll be great fun. And oh, but you know, we'll, we'll be in charge. And, and this is what they didn't understand is that once you mobilize these masses, you have to keep mobilizing them. You can't just let it fall. 
And that's why someone like Hitler is, is so powerful. One of the reasons I was never as worried about Trump as, as some of my colleagues is because I actually don't think Trump had that deep desire to, he's too comfortable to tear it all apart. He wanted to tear enough of it apart so that he could be in charge and have his make a lot of money off it. But he didn't want to see the whole society go down in flames. At least that was my reading of him. I think it's still my reading of him. I, I think he had limits to where he was going to go. Whereas if you're going to really mobilize the masses, you have to be willing to almost cross every limit. And you may disagree with this, but I mean, there's really only two times in his presidency that he really crossed the limits on constitutionalism. One is with Ukraine when he got impeached the first time, and one is with the election fraud claims the second time. You know, a lot of stuff he did was bad. A lot of things he said were awful, but he didn't actually cross the lines about taking power in unconstitutional ways any other time in his presidency that I can think of. I think, I, you know, I've never, I, I haven't thought about this question in this particular form, but I think, I think I would disagree. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that he was intent on destroying the systems of checks and balances. So you don't, you know, some of what he did to destroy the, uh, the system was legal. Like firing all the inspectors general was legal. That's right. But I think, you know, that's just because the law was poorly written. The law did not express the design of the system, right? If inspectors general are there to exercise oversight of the executive branch on behalf of Congress, they should not be fireable by the executive, right? And so I think that he certainly violated the spirit of the constitution by doing that. Another example that I think is very important is his behavior during the first impeachment, mm -hmm. refusing to, to respect congressional subpoenas, both for himself and for White House staff and White House counsel, you know, in clear defiance of the law that time. Well, interestingly enough, yes, and yet through legal means. I mean, I mean, his his evil genius is that he's willing to use the law cynically to the utmost extent. I mean, he never just says, screw the law. He filed, you know, appeals, appeals, appeals. I mean, this is the way he runs his business and it's the way he ran his government. If I recall, actually, I think I think with the impeachment, but just refusing to let people testify in Congress, I think that was just plain illegal. I don't think well, he he refused and said that. But then you have to litigate it. And that was, you know, and the Democrats didn't want to wait to litigate it. Right. I mean, that was the that was the issue. I mean, it was. I think. I think. I, yeah. I, don't, I think so. Sumi is not a legal move. I think that's just that, right. that's just another way of saying fuck you. Yeah. Um, no. Okay. I'll 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 accept that. I mean, he got close. And I think the thing that surprised me, I'm gonna be very honest, that really did surprise me is how many people that I thought would be committed to institutionalism in the way I talked about it, inhabited institutionalism, the word you use, I mean, even people I really don't like, but people like you know Mitch McConnell or or Mitt Romney or, or others were, were willing to go along with this way past where I thought they would ever have gone. And that was deeply terrifying to me. And that's exactly what makes me doubt the idea that Cruz and Holly knew that it was going to fail. Right? Like we're assuming that there's some constraint there that, that I don't know that we've seen evidence. of. of you, you may be right. I mean, I keep, you know, uh, my, my sort of, Worst case scenario right now, maybe not worst case, but what I think is very likely is that the in four years, the election will be Kamala Harris against Nikki Haley. 
And I see her as like the perfect new Trump Republican candidate because it's going to be very hard to call her a racist in those ways. She's going to soften the edges of Trumpism in some way. And yet she has shown herself to be absolutely unreliable, uh, at least as far as I understand what she's done. I don't know everything about her. But, but some candidate like that, I think, is a much more dangerous candidate than someone like Trump in, in some way. That's interesting. I mean, what would it mean to have the first election where the two presidential candidates are women of color, where it's Nikki Haley against Kamala Harris? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, uh, I haven't observed Nikki Haley enough, but uh, I think there's something that is important to politicians like Trump or Putin or Hitler which is that they appeal to people's worst selves. And that's, it's an incredibly seductive appeal. Yeah. yeah. I don't see Nikki Haley as that type of politician. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, I think you're right. And that's why I think she'll, she would actually have a very good chance of winning. I'm not sure how dangerous she would be. That's an interesting, right. and I don't know the answer to that. I mean, this, this brings us maybe to what I hope would be our last uh, point we'll cover. And it's one that I know you and I both care a lot about, which is hypocrisy. I mean, in a way, I mean, Hannah Arendt is a fan of hypocrisy. Um, uh, she says you can't have public life without hypocrisy. If we all constantly told people what was in our hearts and what we were thinking, it would be a very uncomfortable world. And, and that's true in politics as well. And the hunt for hypocrites, she thinks, leads to a kind of terror. Where do you see the good hypocrisies today or, or, or what would a good, what, what, how do you, you've, you've said we need hypocrisy. I think it's a very Arendtian point. Where do you, where do you see the danger of getting rid of hypocrisy or, or what would a good hypocrite look like today? So, yeah, no, you're exactly right to make that connection. Um, Cause I think, you know, that, that appeal to, to your worst selves is of course the throwing off the masks of hypocrisy that Arendt writes about. And I think the dignity and attention to appearances of various sorts that, uh, that we have seen at the point that we're speaking, 10 days of the Biden administration mm-hmm. are really great examples of, of hypocrisy. And let me use a strange example, but I, uh, it's one that I'm familiar with and maybe it'll make this odd part of this conversation where we are suddenly speaking in, in favor of hypocrisy, right? Which most people don't think of as, as something desirable. Maybe uh, it will make it more clear. So um, the White House press brief. The White House press briefings are a spectacle of accountability and transparency. They have very little to do with actual accountability and transparency. That's not where accountability and transparency happens. It is not by any stretch of the imagination part of an important political conversation. Uh, It is certainly not where a great reveal happens, but it is a daily reminder, once again, a daily reminder that this is a government of the people accountable to the people. I think that's what Arendt means by hypocrisy. And that's, and that's, that's an example of, of good hypocrisy. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a great example of, of a kind of a compliment that vice pays to virtue, right? Uh, which is what hypocrisy is that, you know, whatever the president is doing, you have to present yourself as someone who's accountable to the people. And in doing so, you tell a story to come back to our stories, which is, that we're a self-government, that we're a republic. And that story matters. And one of the most dangerous things about the last four years is the, is the diminishment of that story. 
and the claim. And I think you've been on top of this and I think helped me see it more than anyone else. The fact that this was a criminal organization that ran the government for four years. And that's not the story we want to tell. I think there's another, you know, aspect of hypocrisy, right? Which is that you have to tell a story, but you you have to present yourself as speaking for the people. And yet right. you're not the people. And it's a hard thing to do. I mean, and everyone wants to tear the mask of hypocrisy off. So Biden gives up and gives this great speech on his inauguration about unity. And, you know, two or three days later, you know, I mean, this was a little thing that I, you know, I just happened to have come across it, fires somebody from the Labor Relations Board, right? And it wasn't since 1940 when Lyndon and someone else fired, you know, president fired someone. And it's unquestioned. It's unclear whether it's actual allowed by a president to fire this person or not. And Republicans screamed hypocrisy, right? And I actually was thinking, oh, I wonder, should he have done that? I don't know. Because I think the unity thing is a story that he has to tell. It's an important part of his story. And every time he does something like this, as we're about to pass this reconciliation bill for the COVID, again, I'm for it. But every time he does that, it's going to put another chip in that hypocrisy. It's going to give the Republicans the right that claim. And a lot of my friends on the left, one of our colleagues, you know, Joe Neal says, forget that. This is war. We, we've entered a war. Politics is war. Stop with the unity stuff. And so that to me is, a, is one of the biggest questions we have to ask ourselves. Are we, willing, are we willing to sort of keep being hypocrites that we're actually part of a unif- that we're actually trying to be unified or not and, and try and govern from a, a unified stance? Or, or are we just going to say, look, politics has become warfare. Let's just fight the war. Well, I don't, you know, I think that Aaron would say that's not politics. She would say it's not politics, but she also would say that's what politics has increasingly become. But I actually, um, I think there's a difference between the story of unity and a knee-jerk bipartisanship. Okay. Uh, and, um, and I actually think it's possible to tell a story of unity that is new and radical and radical in its inclusion. That's the challenge. The challenge is to not tell a story of a return to normalcy, to not pretend that politics has devolved to an absence of politics, uh, which is when both sides see each other as mortal enemies. Right. He's only going to be able to do that if he brings some meaningful number of the Republicans with him. Right. I mean, this t- these 10 Republicans went to the White House the other day and they said, at least we were taken seriously. He listened to us, whatever. But if some number of them don't continue to say, you know, to participate, it's going to devolve back right. into a war. And, and, and so I think in a lot of ways, whether this works or not, is whether Biden can convince X number of these Republican senators and Congress people to, in a sense, abandon where the Republican Party is going, which is a big ask. Because they're not just accountable to Trump, they're accountable to their voters, and, and they are angry at them. Well, Masha, this has been fun. Um, it's been great. <laughs> hopefully we have another lunch at Edgar's when the pandemic is or when we're both vaccinated or the pandemic is over. Um, that sounds great. I'm um, I've had my first shot. So, you know, I have too. I'm very excited. We and can have uh, lunch soon. And we're now colleagues at Bard. So I haven't even gotten to yeah. see you since we've been colleagues at Bard. Welcome to Bard. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's my and pleasure. It's great well. to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thanks very much. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation with Masha Gessen. 
If you enjoyed listening to this edition of the Amor Mundi podcast, please visit us online at hac.bard.edu and click subscribe to find podcasts, original writing, videos, and more, all delivered twice a week to your inbox. It's bold and provocative thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt, and it's free. To learn how to become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and support our work, just click on Join HAC.